Hey, thanks for listening to the NIL Show, a Campus Inc. production. You can catch us on YouTube, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, and on a campus near you. If you're out there interested in being a guest or having an NIL store for your campus merch, find us on any social channel or email. What's up, everybody? I'm Adam. There's Steven. That's Sean. That means this is another episode of the NIL Show a uniquely special episode as they all are our episodes are like a snowflake you know every single one is special and unique this one is special and unique because we have dave sethu joining us dave really glad to have you here welcome to the pod thank you thank you for having me it's an honor to be here amongst uh, such esteemed hosts uh and hopefully i will do you proud dave Con- I, I have a couple questions before we start uh are you one of our 42 subscribers, first of all, that listens to this? <laughs> oh, man. Like Put me on the spot. If not, like, comment, and subscribe so we can get to 43. <laughs> I'm just we don't look at stats. Infinite game here. Uh, and then secondly, how many times a day do you have to tell people it's not Dev, it's Dave? It is, it is a daily activity, and it's, it's uh, you know, a, a line that I've rehearsed countless times over the past, you know, 30-some-odd years. Um, I don't take offense to people mispronouncing my name. I might take mild offense if I have people who introduce me as their friend and then say, this is my friend Dev, and I'm like, I, are we <laughs> friends if you don't remember how to pronounce my name? But, um, but if phonetically looks like Dev, it is pronounced Dave. That's how they pronounce it in India. I don't knock people who have the same name as me, who, who they themselves pronounce it Dev. My, my cultural reference point for my name is actually, and, and if you'll indulge me for a minute here, uh, how many of, of us have seen the show Master of None? Aziz? Yes. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep. So, so prior to his, like, you know, sort of controversy, I guess, around the time of that show, the first season, um, you know, which was incredible television he went by the name dev but if you follow that season closely there are about three or four times when his family is talking to him and they call him dave and so to me like i point to that um and obviously i'm more keenly sensitive to it than the average person would be (laughs) anyways yeah That, that is great tv master of none it's that was like covid bingeable just a little bit of a, a show about nothing and a show about everything at the same time. I never picked up on that Dev Dave reference. Yep, I will. Uh, if I could cut a snippet of it and just like post it on YouTube or something, that's probably what I should we, do. We but... should we should make you a shirt that says it's been this many days since someone's called this <laughs> guy. Just wear it every day. Sell sell it on one of your NIL stores. Nobody will know who I am, but you know, maybe 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 get some transactions. Um, I love it. Well, so Dave, any... go ahead, Adam. Excited. Excited to have you here. Uh, honestly, you're a guest that I've I've wanted to have on for for a long time um, since we first met. You have a really interesting background. I'm going to embarrass you here for a minute. Um, started your career at Google. Um, graduate of Notre Dame. I know that because you never let me forget it. Because every time I see you, you're wearing Notre Dame gear. Um, after your time at Google, you went over to Whistle Sports. Then you were the chief of staff at Complex. And after that, you were the head of sports at uh, Meta and Instagram, which is where we first met. Um, so uh, really just a, a fascinating career. Uh, you were 40 of 40 under 40 for Sports Business Journal this last year, um, which I feel like you didn't you didn't promote that as much as you should, man. If that was me, I'd, I'd be getting banners made. I'd be hanging <laughs> them up out, out on the street. So very accomplished. Um, you are now 
the COO at athletes.org, which we'll get into. Um, but just talk to me a little bit about time at Google. How do you go from Google to sports? Yeah, I mean, I wish anything you just described was by intention or design. And honestly, I think it's all been by luck and good fortune and just good relationships because, you know, to your point, uh, I started, I, I guess I was one of the, if not few, I was one of the stories of people who have, who work in sports who did not start in sports. Uh, when I joined Google, this is back in 2007, I was actually on their sales and consulting side of the business, working with advertisers and agencies around their digital marketing efforts, specifically across Google properties, search, display, YouTube network, et cetera. And about halfway through my tenure is when I transitioned to content partnerships at YouTube. And this was with a focus on sports, but the world of social and digital as we know it today looked um, incredibly different back in 2011. Snap didn't exist. Twitter and Facebook were sort of things. I think Instagram was photo only at the time. Monetization on YouTube had barely, if at all, launched. And so if you think about the evolution of our industry and really the span of less than 10 years, it's been absolutely incredible versus any number of other industries that frankly move at a snail's pace relative to these industries. And so that was my first foray into sports and it was working with athletes, sports creators, teams, leagues, really around the value proposition of using a platform like YouTube to build, engage, and subsequently monetize an audience. And I think everyone would hear that and be like, well, yeah, and no shit, it's, that's obvious, right? Back in 2011 to 13, that value proposition was far less clear and the trade-offs were even you know, more, more significant, right? Why would the Boston Celtics, who have a thriving O&O property, bostoncelticscom really put premium content on a platform they don't own and economics that are far less favorable with an audience that they don't necessarily own. And again, fast forward a decade later and you'd find every one of your favorite brands, organizations, uh, et cetera, on these platforms. But that certainly wasn't the case 10 years ago. Look at the NFL and other pro leagues. They were actively taking content down off of those platforms mm -hmm for years before deciding to embrace the ecosystem. Major League uh, that, Baseball. That offered. I mean, and Sean, too, I mean, you've, you're intimately aware of a lot of the, the policies that those leagues and other media entities um, held for a long time. So just, again, we were in a different generation not that long ago when it came to that. Um, and that was my first foray or entrance into sports. And I've been, yeah, one of the very lucky ones who's been able uh, to to take something I love on a personal level, which is sports um, and turn it into somewhat of a profession. So Dave, what do you think? What was your biggest, I mean, I'm just thinking like 2011, what was I doing? YouTube, what you could only upload like 30 megabytes. It would take 10 minutes to upload. You know, I think it was all those stupid viral, like muffins videos and like <laughs> silly, silly, silly YouTube. What was your biggest break there? Like where, from when you started to where you left, like, was a, a distinct memory um, or something you were really proud of that probably made a big impact that we all see today and might not really <laughs> had a part in? Yeah, I, I, for me, I mean, it was helping to launch or a couple of things, helping to launch our monetization products, which were game changing for individuals using that platform to be able to, to make money off of the great content that they were producing. Uh, that Back then, it was actually invite only. 
you know, any one of us can start a YouTube channel right now and try to elect into monetization. Back then you had to, you had to be invited, let alone go through a rigorous application process. So, you know, I'm fortunate to have been a part of that. Um, I was at the first few VidCons, which if you've been to them today, they are selling out the Anaheim Convention Center. Back then they were in the basement of a hotel uh, in LA. And so to see the industry quite literally grow from humble origins to what it is today and, you know, terms that we use today uh, in common speak like creator economy, which wasn't, which was a, it's sort of a fancy dressed up way of describing a lot of what was going on back then before creators really became a term. Um, I, I honestly think one of the, I'll say not proudest things that I've done, but the relationships I made back between 2011 and 13 have been long lasting, lifelong relationships and friendships that have actually served me in my career, working with the guys at Dude Perfect, getting to meet and befriend Grayson, the professor Boucher, who um, I knew watching on the M1 mixtape tour um, and is one of the most prolific content creators across all of social and digital, um, you know, working with organizations like the Vancouver Canucks and actually hiring somebody from the Canucks when I left to join Whistle Sports. Um, it's just, there's so many things, so many, so much of my origin story in this industry and sports began there. Uh, and even relationships with the agencies, with Chris Chorus at Rep One, which just got acquired. Um, it all started back then, which is just nuts to think about. And, um, and I'm just grateful that I, began many of those relationships um sort of early days that's really can we even can we even mention the professor without saying the professor like that is how that that dude is known i came across him on instagram recently actually uh i don't know it might have been a month ago and i was like oh this guy's still doing it and he's like got a ton of followers like i want to say he's he's in the millions right dave He's in the millions across yeah you know every platform that you want to follow him on and I'll, and i'll say this much and i Hopefully he'll listen. I'll share this out with him. He is uh, for as prolific and great of a of a content creator and an individual brand you would call him. He is an even better person. Um, just one of the kindest people you'll ever meet, and I'm uh, just grateful to have met him along my journey. I feel like, yeah, it's really cool. I, I think like the the common thread with you, Dave, as I as I look at your career, is just the word that comes to mind for me is adaptation. Um, because you're constantly working with emerging audiences, emerging platforms, and to be successful there, you have to be able to adapt um, and understand what's coming next and kind of be a little bit of a crystal ball to say, hey, this is a place that we can capitalize on and reach new audiences. Um, I, I know for me personally, I saw Whistle Sports and I immediately, immediately thought of the lacrosse network. Uh, being a Baltimore guy, I know you're a DMV guy, and I remember those guys joined up with Whistle, Net, with, uh, Whistle Sports when you were there. Um, but Aside from from keeping you young in these emerging in emerging platforms, what have you enjoyed most about that space? Why has it been a space that you've thrived in? Partially because I think I was on the front side of part of this industry, and so it I think almost emotionally inclines you to stay connected. I mean, even in my role today at Athletes.org, it's probably less so than ever um, affiliated with the creator community with, uh, with even social and digital to a degree, but that part of my, uh, of my career, that part of my emotional investment in that space, like that doesn't go away. And I think that 
essentially helps uh, me think of it as a building block of sorts that I can keep coming back to, that I try to stay connected to. You know, I'm sure all of us subscribe to countless trades that we can't read uh, all of on a given day, but I still subscribe to any number of newsletters and outlets that help me stay plugged into a degree because I do have an emotional connection to it. And I want to stay appraised of the comings and goings because I have spent a lot of my career there. Um, and and I think whether it's directly or indirectly, having a, de- a degree of fluency, let alone expertise, can serve me in this function or any other function moving forward. So I almost don't want to leave it in the rear view. I'd rather have it sort of in the passenger seat, if that makes sense. That's super cool. I think what's really interesting, you said like the world, the universe invented the term creator economy, right? When when YouTube started coming out on Instagram and on all these creator tools. And when I talk to investors or other people, they're like, what do you do in this NIL space? I'm like, we're just breaking down the walls of the creator community and the creator economy into the licensing space. Like that's essentially what we're doing. And that barrier has never been broken before. Um, college athletes weren't really able to do it. You met us, or I met you when you worked at Meta or Instagram, and you were the first person I've ever known to work at Instagram. So I was like, I know someone that works there. And so I could brag about that for a sec. Uh, but you initiated a really cool opportunity with us where uh, Meta wanted to lean into athletes, and, and they've got this Meta Empower program that I'm sure you were a big part of. But it was such a grassroots effort to get athletes to sell on reels um and i didn't think a company of that magnitude would be so grassroots um i was like they really care about this like that's what they care about right can you talk about what you started like you know nil came about in 21 you guys were very early and meta meta took a position there talk to us about what you did there because i thought that was just fascinating and kind of how we started. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think, well, if you you rewind to fall, winter of 2020, this goes back to sort of my passion meeting profession uh, bent. And one of the ways in which I have been able to create value, you know, with my organizations and employers because of my passion, you could have started to read tea leaves, I would venture to say, in fall or winter of 2021, or 2020, excuse me, July of 21 was going to be a thing within college athletics. What that thing was going to be, you know, the TBD to a degree, but it seemed like it was going to involve NIL. The NCAA's hand was being somewhat forced with, you know, state legislation that was going to make that a date that would be of monumental significance to the industry. And frankly, an overdue development in, in, in that industry, given what we were talking about. And, and so back then it was, well, if my job, to maybe even take it in the further step, if my job at Instagram and Meta is to help the company see around corners, to help marry industry priorities and opportunities with company priorities and opportunities, well, to me, NIL and the youth athlete ecosystem represented no greater opportunity because on one hand, you have industry that is about to be massively disrupted with the uh, with the incorporation of NIL and athletes for the first time in this ecosystem being able to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, which to me translated to, well, now these athletes are just eligible for every aspect of our platform that they previously could not engage with um, or leverage or utilize. 
And so that through line is what uh, inspired me to build a practice from scratch within Meta, focusing on youth athletes in college specifically. And uh, it's amongst the, the proudest work that I've done because I think it just highlighted in many ways, like why I think I was hired to even do that job. Um, and so we built that practice to enable, educate, and yeah, equip these college athletes with the education uh, and tools they needed in order to thrive in this era they were about to be ushered into. But Stephen, you, you brought up a really interesting point. Like there's in many ways uh, what happened post 2021, forget the noise around, around pay to play collectives, et cetera, the spirit of NIL, let's call it and the ways in which athletes were going to profit off of their name, image and likeness. A lot of those concepts aren't new. They're not new to world. They're new to this part of the ecosystem. And so how do you take what I learned in my experience at Google, YouTube, working on the media side, working within the walls of Instagram and Meta to be able to highlight and illustrate to this ecosystem all the things they can and should be doing now that they are essentially eligible to do those things. And so it's almost like a packaging of sorts, um, even though a lot of people, I think, want to claim that what they've done is groundbreaking or new. What you all are doing is groundbreaking and new, but the concept of creators or influencers working with brands or things like that, that's not new, right? And so it's just a new context to, to a new audience. Um, to go to your question on sort of why did I care about that grassroots piece, I looked a lot at a lot of my work, whether it was with teams, leagues, media companies, athletes, creators, as how do I work with individual organizations like yours or athletes like, you know, select athletes in our Empower program, which is 30 female uh, college athletes. How do we create what we would call lighthouse moments or examples that can inspire the ecosystem to act? So how can I do something with you all and with a series of athletes that is going to highlight to the broader industry that this is what they should be doing as well? And using those examples, using the right part, working with the right partners like yourselves in, can inspire the ecosystem to act. And so you have to start from that place. There are a number of scale and efforts that we did pursue in order to sort of try to go as broad and wide as possible. But at the end of the day, if I can point very specifically to work that Campus Inc. is doing with Meta, that's working with college athletes, that's something that any college athlete can pay attention to and then try to adopt, rinse, replicate, et cetera. It's, it's awesome. There's just so much that you say there that obviously, you know, we resonate with. But one of the things that you talked about with your time at YouTube is trying to overcome this hurdle of like, guys, this is going to be awesome. This is, this is building, there's this groundswell, but why would the Philadelphia Eagles take what they have as, as a quote unquote, fully owned ecosystem that they manage and put it on something somewhere else? There's a really similar conversation at college sports right now that's happening where, you know, university brands, licensing directors, athletic directors, this, this ecosystem, sometimes you run up against that, like, no, 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 why the heck would I ever want to involve the athlete any more than I am just legally required to. And a lot of the conversations we have with these schools is like, look, <laughs> this is a massive opportunity, probably the biggest one that you will come up against in your career to get on the right side of where this tide is shifting to. When you were at YouTube, like, how did you have those conversations? Because there's such heels in the ground, 
staunch beliefs that this is how it works. We're too big. You can't change this. And you're sitting on the other side of it thinking like, no, like it is already changed. How are you navigating some of those conversations now in the NIL space? Yeah, I mean, some of, I think historically, and I don't want to speak for every industry um, in every period or era, but um, first movers can certainly have advantages, right? Uh, in moving, you know, and zigging when people are zagging or just moving ahead of where their peers are going. And frankly, from a YouTube perspective, listen, we sat on a lot of data that illustrated, hey, audiences are embracing the distributed media model. They are going to be spending less time on dot coms and your O&Os, and they are going to gradually continue to increase their consumption, you know, centrally on platforms that offer them a lot of entertainment content and ways to engage, right? So that's YouTube circa 2011, that is Netflix and other, you know, platforms that exist today. And so how do you try to identify a trend that is going to be persistent moving forward as opposed to just living in a moment in time. And, and that certainly was um, of interest to the partners that we worked with when it came to understanding why they needed to disrupt themselves. But change is hard and disrupting yourself is really hard. But what I would venture to say, and it's applicable in what we're doing today and what you just referenced with even the universities that I'm sure Campus Inc. has partnered with, but also universities that Campus Inc. hasn't partnered with I don't, I don't think it benefits. Well, let me put it differently. I think, uh, these industries benefit from organizations who don't play follow the leader. And I experienced that when I was at Whistle, where there were certain things we did that were highly innovative and disruptive in the space. And there were other areas where we did play follow the leader. And when you play follow the leader, there is inherently less opportunity less meat on the bone because some of it's been spoken for or some of it's already been claimed. And so, yeah, how do you have enough conviction to disrupt yourself and to be able to make educated bets on where a lot of this is going? And frankly, with NIL, I think some of it was probably more obvious than what people were willing to acknowledge, maybe more will than they were more willing to accept because of the tradition that is involved in college athletics. And thanks to organizations like Campus Inc., that, ex that change is being accelerated far more quickly than I think it otherwise would naturally um, with the speed in which college athletics has tended to move over the past number of decades. I'm, I'm just, I'm, as Sean mentioned, I'm seeing this theme popping up in your career and it's like, I'm going to join companies where we're not going to follow the leader and we're going to have to persuade change and convince companies to cannibalize themselves a little bit and rethink things. And, um, that makes for some hard conversations, uh, that might get awkward or might rub people the wrong way. Um, as a, you know, as someone that, that is a disruptor and has disrupted time and time again successfully, um, why do you think, you know, why do you think you're good at it? Like, why do you think, why do you think you're the guy? And when you got the role for COO of athletes.org, I'm like, that is their guy. I was so pumped to see that. hundred percent. Why you? Because I, uh, I think I, I think on, I ask I get, myself that question every day myself. So I get on calls with schools, and I I definitely push buttons, and it's awkward, right? Uh, why do you think you've been able to have the success that you've had, changing the landscape of different industries? Uh, I think one just the level of, and thank you for saying that. I don't know if that's one hundred percent true, but I appreciate um, the kind words. 
I would say a couple of things. Um, one is what I pour into my work um, because, and I told Jim Cavale and Brandon Copeland this back in the summer of 2023, I'm getting my years, years a little mixed up, 2023 when we actually first started having conversations about joining the team. And I said, you know, because at the time I, I was going through a lot of family stuff and I wasn't necessarily ready to uh, take myself out of free agency, let's call it. And the reason I wasn't ready is because I wanted to find the thing that for better and for worse, I could commit to physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I don't recommend that everybody approaches their work that way at times, but for me, that's the kind of commitment I was looking to make. And when you make that kind of commitment, uh, there is, if not an unwavering belief, there is an unwavering amount of effort and investment that you're willing to make to try to take something into the future and build a future for that organization, for that industry. But honestly, the, the thing that has, um, that I have benefited from the most professionally and personally is the relationships I've been able to develop, um, which I frankly would just call them friendships because I'm as invested in the people I'm working with or alongside across the table, et cetera. That has made all the difference in my career. It's led me to different stops along my career. It's led me to doing interesting and innovative work because I feel like I'm pretty decent at building coalitions, let's call it, um, and getting people to understand that um, you know my perspective and also having an empathy for them and their perspective. And empathy, I think, plays a huge role in how you do business. Sure, you can stand on the principles and the values of the business you're representing and why it's going to win, but you also need to be able to communicate that effectively into and build a bridge, build bridges, plural. Um, and I think that I do that well because frankly, I approach those conversations and relationships with the mindset that the relationships are gonna last far longer than the work will. And so I'd rather invest in the person than just the work that we're doing together. And I've been grateful to have met and made many great friends and colleagues in this industry, you know, dating back since the time I entered the industry. And I count the three of you uh, in that group very much so. We can't mispronounce your name ever again. <laughs> Sean, Never. Sean, you were going to say something. What do you got? Yeah, Dave, let's, let's, let's jump into what you're doing now with athletes.org. Uh, AO for short, if anybody uh, hears of it that way. Um, in, in the simplest way, what is athletes.org? What does it do? Um, and more importantly, why is it so important? So we aim to be the Players Association for college athletes. So in simplest terms, think of us like the NFLPA or the NBPA, except we are not a union, given the employment model isn't you know quite here, uh, at least not yet in college athletics. But we feel that irrespective of where we are with the employment model or what's happening at a macro level in college athletics, that now is the time that athletes need to organize to have a unified voice to be able to speak into the conversations and discussions that are happening right now around the future of college athletics, that college athletes deserve to enjoy many of the benefits that pro athletes currently enjoy through their unions, free second medical opinions, free background checks, mental health resources, financial literacy resources, um, pro bono legal advice, you name it. So that support piece. And then we happen to think that in through partnerships like the ones with Campus Inc., we think that 
we can help generate income on behalf of our on behalf of our membership in unique and innovative ways that um, the current landscape of college athletics has not necessarily been able to accommodate or fulfill over the past couple of years. And so we want to be that association. We want to make sure that athletes are speaking into this system. And, you know, really, and what led me to athletes.org, in addition to the belief of what we're doing and why it's so important, is that this is, and I'm guessing you all agree, agree, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to influence and impact the future model of college athletics that I believe will persist for decades, similar to how the previous system has persisted for decades. And that is something that certainly gets me uh, up in the morning a lot easier than potentially other jobs that I've had in the past because you have an opportunity to potentially make an imprint on uh, on this industry that will be long-lasting. And, you know, I've, I've said it to a lot of people, but um, I think in general, you know, because we're so pro-athlete, right, that's what we are. We are an athlete-centric organization. <clears throat> There's an assumption that it means that we – um, either have adversaries or that we are adversarial. And the reality is quite the opposite. You know, I, I've, I've shared with a few folks the past couple of weeks, if you, can, if you can agree on two assumptions, then you can hopefully get to a third outcome. If you can assume that number one, and I don't even know if this is an assumption at this point, that the new model for college athletics is being created as we speak and that it, there will be a new model for college athletics and if you can accept that, the second assumption, which is that athletes, we are in an era where athletes have to be able to speak into the creation of that system, that they are no longer going to receive the systems that they are participating in, that they are going to participate in the creation of that model, of those models, then you get to the third outcome or the maybe the primary outcome, which is it's not athletes.org and our athletes sitting across the table from the NCAA, from the administrators, from the conferences. We're actually sitting at the same table with all these constituents trying to come up with the right solution that is beneficial to every one of those people at that table. And that's how I've approached my work is let's sit at that table. Let's make sure athletes have their rightful place at that table, that AO is a conduit um, for those conversations and representing their perspectives and making sure they're heard so that we get this thing right for them and for everybody else we want to be working alongside of. So is what you're telling me, okay, we hear about a new law. We, I heard Charlie Baker speak at Sports Business Journal Conference. He goes, yeah, it's, like, it's, a, it's a typical week if we get a new lawsuit, right? Wake up every morning and, and we're getting a new lawsuit, right? Or we all see a congressional hearing and we're rolling our eyes at, you know, just the outcome of it. Is what you're saying that's going to start to self-destruct a little, meaning the NCAA can't handle this many lawsuits. Congress has, we don't want to talk about Congress, but uh, that might be a different slow-moving vehicle. Are you guys just trying to be on the receiving end, being like, look, guys, we have something here. We can bring everyone in. We can make sure everyone's handled well. We can give our athletes a seat at the table. Are you kind of just like sitting back and waiting for all of it to, I don't want to say self-destruct a little bit, but implode i think uh if we were sitting back and waiting my schedule wouldn't be nearly as busy or uh or oh, just yeah crazy as, as it is no i don't think there's um i don't think we're sitting back and waiting i think what we're all trying to discern is 
what are the potential outcomes that would lead to the creation of a new model, right? And there seem to be at least two or three primary ones. One is the employment model, which if, listen, things continue to go, you know, through the court system, however fast or slow, that is an inevitable outcome. Or you have the congressional solution that obviously is rife with um, political nuance that the four of us are probably not nearly as privy to as those who sit on Capitol Hill, which is not far from where I live. Um, and the reality is that athletes and athletes.org can operate and should operate irrespective of any outcome that comes to bear, whether it is the employment model or whether it is a congressional solution. And I happen to think, and I would hope that administrators, university presidents, conference commissioners would agree that any system that's created, whether it's through a congressional solution or whether it's through uh, through the court system, that athletes participating in what that looks like in representing their needs, challenges, and opportunities is going to result in a better outcome for everybody. So we're very malleable, whether it's us potentially becoming a union if the employment model comes to bear, or whether it's us simply being the association for college athletes with chapters structured by conference and sport, so we are so we are bringing uh, shared experience, your know, athletes with shared experiences in groups together who can adequately represent their needs and challenges and opportunities. We we're we are able to flex across both, and so I don't think it's a matter of waiting and seeing what happens. It's ensuring that that athlete voice is in those discussions and that we are a vehicle for that voice to be shared, heard, and, and to be influential uh, in whatever outcome exists. Um, and so, yeah, it's obviously a, a lot of work. It's a lot of very, very important work. And we're grateful that our membership uh, trusts us to make sure that we are earning them that right at the table, uh, or excuse me, that seat at the table, um, and that, you know, we are the only organization that exists that truly has the athlete's interests, number one, two, and three on our list of priorities and things that we are working toward. We are the athlete organization. We are the athlete association. Wow. It's, it's interesting. You know, you're, you're saying a lot of words that, um, that, that might boil some blood of some of uh, maybe the old guard and you say things like, oh, they deserve the same rights as professional athletes, or, you know, they deserve to have a say in how this stuff goes. And it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about quickly changing industries. And again, we're going back to the theme of your career of, you know, 2000, let's call it 18, like, less than a decade ago, less than half a decade ago, um, people were, were not even thinking about this conversation. And now it's athletes having representation, athletes having a seat at the table, athletes having a voice in the direction that this entire industry goes, but also athletes being afforded the same rights and benefits that professional athletes have because it's such elite competition. It's, it's not even like a, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a, yeah, this is, this is a no brainer. And so, you know, the work that you guys are doing, the work that we're trying to do um, on the merchandising and the licensing side, like it is feeling like an uphill battle every day because you still have a lot of these old ideas. But when you take a step back and you think about it, it's like, it's actually on the downhill. Like we are moving this direction. This is happening. <laughs> Those dominoes uh, have dropped. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. You know, in some ways, and that's a very different industry or conversation, but 
it's almost as if when all of us pay attention to the politics um, of our of our government and wonder why people are debating things that seem like foregone conclusions. I would like to think that there are some foregone conclusions in our industry, such as let's call it revenue sharing between certain classes or groups of athletes um, and whether it's universities or the conferences, et cetera, based on revenue that they generate. I understand that's a, it's a leap for a lot of people who are, haven't been accustomed to such dramatic change in their industry, but I think there's also, I would hope, just an acknowledgement that some of these things are just the right thing to do. Um, and, and I will say, not to tie it back to my previous experiences, but you could probably draw a line from where we are today and the tenor of this conversation to the, uh, to the proliferation, if that might be the right word, or to the, the hyper growth of social media, which has led to the disintermediation of the athlete and fan relationship. So athletes no longer have to wait for a microphone to be put in front of their faces to be able to share their opinions and perspectives. They just go straight to their consumers, right? They can literally announce their own news. They can share their opinions. I mean, you have Kyrie Irving talking about his stance on COVID and vaccination to 100,000 people uh, sorry, my screen just dropped. Can you still hear me? Yeah, we're good. You're good. Yep. Okay, sorry about that. My whole screen just went blank. Um, yeah, I mean, literally him just deciding, I'm not going to go do an interview with CBS or 60 Minutes. I'm just going to go broadcast on Instagram Live to 100,000 of my fans or 100,000 of my critics and just tell you how I feel, right? And that disintermediation has led to athlete empowerment, which I think has led us to a place where athletes are no longer – uh, willing or wanting to sit on the sidelines when they know they can play an active role in what's happening to them and realizing that they actually can influence that system that they're going to be participating in. And, you know, Chase Griffin is obviously one of the, let's call it like poster representatives of this in that he obviously has thrived in the NIL era, but he's also used his platform to inspire other athletes and to instigate change as well. And, it's, I think, symbolic of what we've seen over the past couple of years, thanks to social media's growth and fans going direct to their favorite athletes and celebrities. Yeah. And, and how much more important then, you know, if, if that microphone, if that platform is there, if we've democratized that access and that platform, how much more important then to have an organization, have an entity that is equipping those with the platform to handle it well? Um, both from a, how they represent themselves, but also just how they manage being on that platform, because that's a whole new ball game of, you know, when you, when you, for <laughs> no pun intended, when you get into um, that type of spotlight on you and you have that many people who have direct access to you in your pocket um, and you have nobody who's standing shoulder to shoulder with you saying, Hey, here's, here's how we handle this. Hey, here's some mental health resources to deal with this. Hey, um, you're gonna have a lot of people with their hand out asking for stuff from you. Here's how we can actually put some financial literacy, um, knowledge or resources in front of you to consume. It becomes infinitely more important as all of those things continue to compound, which is, you know, the direction we're going. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so I mean, I, I absolutely, and again, that's where a lot of the context is new to these athletes, and we have to we have to be very sober about the fact that over the past two plus years, 
for as many positive developments that have happened in this space, there's a lot of predatory behavior, which is exactly what happened back in 2011 to 13 when you're talking about um, the rise of this quote-unquote creator economy. There were a lot of predatory behaviors that existed too because people could be taken advantage of. But, you know, I said this, I made this remark back in, gosh, I think it was 2022 at the NIL Summit down in Atlanta. And I described the audience there as all being pioneers uh, because they were pioneering as essentially the first generation of athletes who were embracing this era and defining what this era could be and mean to not only their generation of athletes, but to future generations of athletes. And that's the thing that, again, I, as I look at you know my career, I look at this opportunity specifically, but I look at the athletes who are involved, right? College athletics is so transient, for lack of a better term, but you have an opportunity to build a legacy around what's happening now and pioneer you know, what is essentially going to be created in the future. And, um, and I think that's, that's worth us trying at athletes.org. And it's certainly been worth it to the members that we have in our association who want to be a part of what we're building. This Man, is incredible. There's, there's so much here. We're going to have to have you back for a, uh, for a part two. Hold, hold on, Adam. We gotta, we gotta ask one big question. Oh, um, the, the most important question has not been, not been lost. We have one oh, question. I, I think b before we wrap and we got to do a part two or something, cause this is just, we could go on for hours. This is fascinating. Uh, if I was athletes.org, I'd have one concern. Uh, and that's that Dave Sethi could be the next president of the NCAA. I'm just <laughs> record it, put it on the record. Speaking that's of reading that, tea leaves. Uh, and if it comes out in the universe, you know, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever. I said it here first. Uh, <laughs> all right, Adam, hit Dave with, Dave with it. Most most important question of the pod, Dave. Uh, current Dave Sethi, not, not college age, current Dave. If you could land your dream restaurant NIL deal, the no-brainer slam dunk, what's your dream NIL restaurant deal today? Oh, my gosh. Um, my dream NIL restaurant deal. There is a I, – I, I don't – I mean, maybe this deal would be like a, a pretty small deal, but I live uh, – for listeners who don't know, I'm in the D.C. metro area. Uh, I live in a suburb that's called Reston, and there is it's sort of like a hot chicken place called Woo Boy. And for those who have not been, if you ever come visit, this is the place I will take you. It is the greatest like quick service restaurant I've ever, I've ever experienced. And it's not even three minutes from the window I'm looking outside of right now. Um, so that's one. And I would say maybe one B would be this uh, local uh, restaurant. They got about three locations in the DMV called Lost Dog Cafe, which is a staple in the DC metro area. They also have a foundation that supports rescues. I have three rescue dogs downstairs who have fortunately been on their best behavior during this call. Um, but it's nice to, to, to support and be supported by restaurants that also are mission driven. Um, and if I got to pick a national franchise, then Chick-fil-A probably. So. I love it. I love there it. You well, you, you, a local boy, you heard it here first. Ooh boy, lost dog cafe, Chick-fil-A. If you're listening, hit him up. He's open. DMS are open, make him an offer. <laughs> Man, you know, I'm just I'm so proud and excited to have been close enough to watch your career, been close enough to watch what you guys are doing at AO. The thing that sticks with me is what you said is this work is important enough to get up every day and keep on doing it. So appreciate you being here. 
I'm excited to see what the future holds. I'm Adam. That's Steven. There's Sean. This has been another episode of the NIL Show. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, guys. Hi, everybody. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Want to say real quickly, thank you so much for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any custom merchandise, youth jerseys, camp t-shirts, whatever it may be, you can always find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store. We're going to jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy.